0: Thank you for choosing to listen to this episode today. Before we begin, I just wanted to let you know that recently Talks Talk changed its name to Talks Now. So during this episode, at multiple points, you'll hear us refer to Talks Talk and the website Talks Talk. But you can check out all that great content at Talks T O X N O W dot O R G, and follow us at our Twitter feed at TalksNow. So, same great people, same great content, just a slightly different name. Thanks for listening. We'll continue with the episode now. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Tox Talk, a toxicology podcast from the UMass Division of Toxicology and Department of Emergency Medicine. I'm your host, Matt Zuckerman. On this episode, we're getting together with the team at the Aubin Child Protection Center at Hasbro Children's Hospital in uh, Providence, Rhode Island to discuss some cases. This is going to be a great episode. You're going to hear from a number of people, including the wonderful Christine Barron and Amy Goldberg and some of the child abuse pediatric fellows. These people work hard every day and are on call long hours to try and be there to help investigate child abuse. And there's a lot of other terms for it and and ways to soften it, but that's what they investigate as child abuse. And these can be some of the hardest questions because what they have to do is try and determine if a given story is consistent with the exam and the lab findings and and all the other information that they pull together. And in the ED, I find that there's often a lot of discussion about whether spiral fractures indicate abuse and retinal hemorrhages and sort of classic findings on radiology and physical exam. But a lot of these cases also involve substance use, either pharmaceuticals or illicit substances. It can be very hard to determine how children got exposed to these. And drug tests are often sent, but even then, even when the results are back, it can be difficult to determine what they mean and whether or not a particular case is child abuse. And so the purpose of this meeting was to give a medical toxicology insight into some of these cases. I hope that you enjoy some of the concepts discussed and the unique challenges of really of diagnosing this type of child abuse. Uh, I find that whenever we get together with our colleagues at the Avon Child Protection Center, there's always a lot of great discussion and really concepts and issues that, that you just don't see in other fields or other parts of toxicology. So hope you enjoy. Once again, I want to remind you to respond to us. Uh, if you hear anything you like or don't like or suggestions at toxtalk at toxtalk.org or check out our Twitter feed at toxtalk and our Facebook page. And uh, feel free to check us out in the iTunes store and drop a comment or a review. Uh, that's often how other people get to hear about us. Without any delay, uh, here's the episode.
1: Want to read the first case
0: and then we can discuss it? Sure. So, the first case is uh, everyone's got a copy of this. Is a four year old evaluated for concerns of possible ingestion of an unknown substance who presented to the PMD and then presented to Children's Hospital ED and stated patient was having an allergic reaction to eating food containing peanuts. Was tachycardic, seemed to be having a dystonic reaction with the head turned to one side and couldn't move it. The initial talk screen was positive for cocaine, the confirmatory test was negative the provider then spoke with the lab, and after giving them the history, they re-ran the testing and then got a positive test for cocaine. Not sure what additional tests they completed, quote-unquote, but I have the lab report. Discussion points are false positives and negatives for cocaine. What is the confirmatory test? And when a child comes in with ingestion of an unknown substance, what are some of the general principles of what to do?
1: So I think that there are a few different points that are worth discussing for all of these cases. And I'm going to throw a few questions out there for all of you as well. Does cocaine cause dystonia in kids? It's a rarely reported adverse event. And when we typically think about dystonia, we think about antiemetics, we think about antipsychotics, but we don't automatically assume that cocaine is one of the causative agents. So I think that this is a great teaching case in terms of reminding us that recreational drugs can cause dystonia in children. And when you're faced with a child with a dystonic reaction without explanation, there's case literature that supports cocaine as a possible etiology. In terms of why that would be important, from a child protection standpoint, I guess the question that I have from our end is, when you find somebody who has a covert exposure to a recreational drug in the house, specifically an illicit drug, what sorts of things does that put in motion?
2: <laughs> so It's it lots of things in motion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think when we first start, and there's, and there's a concern, right? So the first thing when this child presented was, is this a potential Ingestion, particularly getting a history that it may be ingestion, then a change of a history saying, oh, no, no, this is just a reaction to him eating peanuts, which is not the reaction we would expect, that automatically prompted the ED to to notify us. So we were automatically involved to say, there's something not right here, and there is a concern that there's some component here that you guys should be involved with. And that's really how I became involved in the case.
3: So, you know, talking about time frame, it's a great segue, was... It cocaine or cocaine metabolite. It was the type?
1: Well, we can ask Bill. So, in terms of our first line, <laughs> in terms of our first line screening test here for cocaine, what do we actually test for, and how do we do it?
4: The acids are pretty much designed for cocaine metabolite, based on benzylacaine, the pr- primary uh, metabolite. There is some, depending on the manufacturer, there are usually some much lower, lesser course reactivity with the parent drug cocaine or with other subsequent metabolites. But they are principally designed in, for a cutoff of reactivity of a certain concentration of benzylacanine.
3: If I were going to look for cocaine proper, the parent compound,
4: in the blood, what's my window of opportunity after expression? We do not handle blood here. We strictly look in urine. In urine. So I really couldn't answer that for you.
2: Can you answer that question for urine. Is there a way to check for just for the cocaine itself, or only the metabolite? Is it only makes sense for The
4: screening test picks up the metabolite.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: However, if you do a comprehensive screen, you will pick up both.
0: Okay. But it's going to depend on how much of the product is typically excreted unchanged. I mean, if, if nothing's excreted unchanged, then going on that fishing expedition won't help you. And in fact, a false negative in a way might provide more evidence for the other other team. If they say, aha, there was no cocaine in the urine, but you wouldn't expect to find cocaine in the urine, you just shot yourself in the foot. So,
3: so the reason i bring this up is that cocaine, cocaine is a relatively unstable molecule. It's got uh, two ester linkages, one of which can hydrolyze spontaneously, in serum and urine. The other you know, can hydrolyze spontaneously, but generally requires enzymatic reactions to do so. echinine is, is a relatively stable molecule, which is why the immunoassay is directed towards it. If you want to look for cocaine in the blood, you generally only have a few minutes uh, if you know, if like a whole bunch of planets align, like if you have the right collection system, if you can freeze it rapidly, if you can analyze it rapidly, because cocaine does break down uh, rapidly. Mm-hmm. Um I've heard that you only have about thirty minutes, like if you want to do that. So functionally it's impossible to get out of the it's functionally impossible to get out of the blood. You can so, you can freeze urine and store it properly and have a little bit longer window of opportunity for, for the parent compound, but in general you're always looking for cocaine metabolite, metabolite. the cocaine metabolite benzochony. But that yeah, but that
5: Happen
3: really in a child to be able to find really, it. And, really like,
5: given the circumstances that we deal with, it's really
3: unlikely. You know, it, like it, it, you have to like, like take okay and, and say here, drop my blood. Yeah, okay. almost, almost that quickly.
6: Is so, the, meta- the metabolite that you're mentioning <laughs> is that um, ever show up with anything else as metabolite? Like cross well, reactivity?
3: Well, yes. Is let, let's come. Let's come back to that okay. in, a, in a second. But you know, one thing I wanted, the other thing I wanted to bring up while we're on this specific topic is we get a positive screen, which detects cocaine above a particular threshold. If it's absent, or if it gives you a negative response on that portion of the tox screen, it doesn't mean that cocaine metabolite is there. It means it's not there in a sufficient concentration to cause a positive result. So then you do the confirmatory test. Now, the confirmatory test was negative, but then they did again it was positive. So the question I had for the child protection end of things is let's pretend that I take a sample, I shoot it into, is it a GCM aspect or a GCM aspect? Yes. So so I shoot it into some sort of analysis device, and I get a result which is below the threshold that whatever reporting agencies and credentialing agencies allow. Will you work with a clearly positive result that nonetheless misses the threshold by a couple of nanograms? Absolutely,
2: yes. I mean, in this case, I had placed the child in custody, notified police. Police went out to the house, made an arrest. And there was no question I was going to have to go testify in this case, even starting in family court. And it was very clear that even if it was negative, I had enough information to demonstrate that given the scenario and the details that I had, that it still was consistent with an ingestion, would be consistent with ingestion of cocaine, and that... There are multiple limitations of our ability to test, particularly in children, and would have to speak to that in court. But anything would be helpful, of course.
3: Right. So it's always important to go back and actually have a conversation with people who run the laboratory to mm-hmm. say, "Yeah, come on, I, I really, I really need to know. This is the this is a clinical circumstance, and mm-hmm. you know, I, I understand that we can't report the results officially as such." But what information can we nonetheless get?
1: And I, I think that the important part, too, is understanding what these thresholds were designed for. These these thresholds were largely driven by transportation safety. They were designed to limit the number of false positives that were obtained. But when you're talking about child protection, any detectable amount of cocaine is concerning when you're talking about opioids in an opioid-naive child, any detectable amount is concerning. So that's why the same thresholds that we use in adults for, say, something like truck driving are not necessarily applicable to your population, particularly when they're symptomatic. And mm-hmm. in this case, it sounds like there was a confirmed exposure or there was a confirmed access yes. to cocaine in the home.
0: And that's also that's the universal thing about I mean, toxicology in general is lots of people come away with the impression that toxicology is getting a tox screen and then going based on that. But it's just like every other field of medicine. 90% of it is history, exam, physical. Does that make sense? Because the labs are fallible. And the frustrating thing is like you would never send a heart attack lab You send a troponin, understanding the um, benefits and shortcomings of that assay for diagnosing heart attack. But when it comes to tox screens, we take this universal positive, universal negative approach to them. And with forensics and child toxicology, it's even harder because so often in the adult world, I honestly don't care what they took. Supportive care. If it does this, it does this. But in in pediatric cases, it's so important to establish an actual exposure and what it was. It's so hard to do.
2: And it really, truly is important for the safety of kids. So that you have to be able to identify that. That obviously, it's very easy to say how unsafe a situation would be for any child if they have potential exposure to cocaine. But if you can't prove that, then you have to argue how well how can you say that this home is unsafe then
4: i think one thing that was mentioned was uh, contact the lab Mm -hmm. because if you have a cutoff, a certain signal you would want you say it's positive it's negative well the old days i'm old enough we used to manually do this and we would look at the answers of course we're put on chemistry analyzers which are robots and simply above, below, yes, no. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't hurt to say, could you go back and look at the rate? I mean, I know I've done that from home, called the chemistry lab and say, the doctor thinks somebody took ecstasy or something. Could you do me a favor? Could you please pull two absolutely negative urines, PD osmolalities or something, run them and run this patient. And they'll say, I got this, I got this, and I got this. Okay. Then I can just Unofficially call back the doc and say the answer is going to go out. I think but really looks like it tomorrow. They can confirm it or something. Yeah. But just it doesn't hurt to communicate. Yeah. You know,
3: <laughs> it, it really it does. It really numbers. does pay off. You know, like mm-hmm. this, you know, there's so much emphasis now in medicine on automated notification systems. You know, we forget that, you know, face-to-face or at least telephonic communication where you can explain situations. And, mm-hmm. You know, like another way to you know, like highlight it from our experiences, we've had people come in that we swore up and down. Got into GHB. Well, our lab is not credentialed to report the presence of GHB in the urine, and of course, it was negative for GHB because they're not credentialed to do so. Mm-hmm. So when we called up and asked, they said, "Oh, yeah, the concentration of GHB in the urine is 323 nanograms per hour. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can get a lot of information just by having just by having a simple simple conversation. Well,
4: and
1: it, I think Bill represents so much analytical toxicology expertise, and I've, I've called him a million times for, for different questions, but in terms of this case, in terms of why you think the confirmation was initially negative and then positive, do you think it was an adjustment of our level of detection?
4: It could be a concentration issue. You can be right at a cut off one or the other, and you know, if you have a procedure that says you use two mLs of urine and somebody calls up and says, we really suspect that... You, know, you may say, okay, I'll repeat it using 5 mLs. I'll use more material just to find it. Uh-huh. But you're qualitatively saying, yes, it's there. I mean, that's, I, I don't know the particulars of this, but another answer, not necessarily here, but that can happen is you have a cutoff for a drug of abuse. And we'll take another family, uh, benzodiazepines. Okay. Valium gives you a certain signal. It's metabolite, nordazepam, gives you a signal. It's metabolite, oxazepam, gives you a signal. So when you test for benzodiazepines, it could be positive. Okay. But when you go, that's the sum of all the parts. I guess. So you. when you go look for any of multiple components, it could be below what you're Right, they're much for. lower individually. It could be lower individually, but the that's sum... Is what's going to trigger that? Mm-hmm. And GC is weird because we expect it to have
0: a perfect result if we're looking for one compound or a thousand compounds, and so it makes sense, just like anything else, when when you say I'm looking specifically for cocaine, well then you can filter out all the other stuff and look specifically for those peaks. Versus the machine doesn't know that you're looking for cocaine. You know the whole issue of you know what does a tox screen
3: detect and what it doesn't detect is, uh, I mean you could spend. I think months just <laughs> refining your your knowledge of that. But you know, mm-hmm. there are a couple of a couple of general a couple of general comments. My impression has always been that the portion that's used to detect cocaine metabolite is very good. The portion that's used to detect marijuana is very good. Benzodiazepines are terrible because there's so many new benzodiazepines that came out from the time they developed the tox screens. The ability to protect amphetamines also is extraordinarily poor too because at the time the tox screens were being developed, compounds like dexedrine were still over-the-counter weight loss products. Phenopropanolamine were over-the-counter weight loss products. And um, primatine mist also, mm-hmm. which had outright amphetamine in it, was, mm-hmm. was over-the-counter as well. So the manufacturers of these over-the-counter medications approached the people who were developing the tox screens and said, "Hey, look, like, we don't want all the users of our products being labeled druggies." So the amphetamine portion of the screen and the benzodiazepine portion of the screen are pretty sloppy, and for a lot of the compounds that you will see day to day, the likelihood that you'll get a positive result is really pretty low. So you just can't you just can't rely on the tox screen the same way you could for cocaine or
0: marijuana. And that's not even counting all the new agents. I mean, some of the C2 agents and synthetic cannabinoids and stuff, which I don't know how you guys are handling those. A C2. There is definitely ways to assay for those because it's in the literature, and certainly our forensic colleagues have to do this when they're doing crime analysis or forensic analysis of bodies. But on a clinical setting, we were talking about this the other day, the clinical part of it hasn't necessarily caught up, at least at our institution. And part of that's just due to the properties. Part of that's due to the fact that every other week they're coming out with a new agent, which requires a different test, and they're not really sending us
4: updates before they release these. How are you guys dealing with these? Yeah, we have the peaks to look for, but we don't really test for it. There are some testing kits available. However, they are not FDA-approved. They're for forensic use only. Therefore, you cannot legally use them, just as with the amino acids, like cocaine or something. It's not FDA-approved on blood or serum. Gotcha. It's only a urine test. We occasionally used to use it, and then we... Somebody found that one time. So, quite honestly, what we do now is, if we do not get a urine, we will do the test on the serum. It's not allowed. Yeah. But... If we don't report it and we don't charge for it, we can do anything we want in-house. So we would do it as a heads-up and say, that head looks like it has cocaine. I mean, it's we don't know what it is, and then go pursue it that way. And then so
0: legally, though, I guess, that's my question. So then you do a test that's not FDA-approved in a particular yep. manner, and how is that handled not by the courts? Easily. Or legally? Not
2: easily. Because there's always going to be, the same thing will it always be, even though it's not against the parent and we're looking at it. Their attorney, of course, would be like, wait a minute, that's not approved. Mm-hmm. But I think that in in my experience has also been that while everybody believes, because they watch CSI, they put your little sample in, you get all of your little peaks, and say, hey, look, this... This is sand from one beach only, and this is where this is. (laughs) Okay. Uh, So all of us at this table know that doesn't happen. So we're already fighting against that to start with, because people just say, what do you mean? You do a talk screen. and just tells you everything. You don't even have to know what you're looking for. It just tells you everything. So we're already sort of starting behind the eight ball with, hey, let's explain to you what is possible or not possible. And then go from there. And so our experience has been very good with Rhode Island G. Sweetoff, where we can say, listen, here's enough concerns. Clinically putting all these pieces together, here's where our concerns are and make sure the child's safe. And also based on the clinical presentation. Well, that's just that, yeah, so yeah. The clinical history, There's all of that is very history, yeah. important. But they, they will allow that request. evidence
0: to at least be introduced.
2: They can use it in their investigation. When okay. we get to family court... And you have to try to maintain the safety for a child. That's where those issues will come into play. And, you know, my experience has been that particularly with children, not only do we have these thresholds that are set really for, like, transportation in adults, but also that, you know, it's really unusual to get adequate amount of urine for kids and that kids' urine is very dilute. And oftentimes it's a time delay because nobody's sort of thinking. I mean, the first thing you think when when an adult comes in and seems to be under an influence is to think about drugs. But for kids... That's not always the first thought. So we have all those things against us. And I think that that's something that we describe and explain when we're on the stand. Like, here is why this is not a simple, straightforward, you just do the test and you know everything. And I think the way that we've been able to partner in the past is that we can speak to whether the
1: constellation of symptoms either matches or does not match with the drug testing. Mm -hmm. And whether we agree with the findings of, uh, of the child protection team at the bedside, and so that's the role
2: that we played in, in the past, and uh, it's been exceedingly helpful, right, to have someone also say that yes, from a toxicology point of view, that yes, dystonia can be caused by cocaine. It's a rare occurrence, but it can be caused by that. So all of those things really are very helpful in keeping kids safe, and that's really what our role is. So I think it's been very helpful to collaborate. Is good? Oh, we
4: had a question. Oh, we, we had a question about false. Um,
2: Positives.
4: As far Which as was the, false yeah. positives, is cocaine, cocaine is like one of the best. I mean, I don't know if I've seen a false positive. I'm probably, I don't have a number. 97% positive, correct or whatever. Usually if a screening test is positive, it is positive. It is cocaine. It is cocaine. However, Excuse me. I, I won't bad mouth the manufacturer, but we our, our drug screening is done on the main chemistry platforms. Twenty-four hours a day, and uh, uh, the system here is they do the upfront, and samples will then flow to us for storage. And and uh, it was a few years ago, I came across something, and just logging these in, and I said this isn't right. Eighty-six year old female on PCP, <laughs> and then like two days later, a seventy-six year old on um, PCP. I said, number one, we we just don't see PCP here. We test for it. I don't even know when we saw the last real one.
5: They did it together.
4: But, excuse me. <laughs> <everybody. laughs> uh, at the home, they were like, like, exactly. like, like, hey,
5: let's do this again. I yeah. just unpacked the trauma. I feel like a lot of people like, <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they feel like, hey, God. let's but start with It's a living thing. <laughs>
4: <laughs> but the point was is that most institutions only have immunoassay screenings. That's it. And unfortunately, if your patient is not is unconscious, you're tested for cocaine twenty times. If it's not cocaine, you're not helping. We offer immunoassay panels. We also offer something that's a little more extensive called a comprehensive drug screen, where we physically screen screen by mass spectrometer. People think it's strange, but you say, Oh, he's on Benadryl or he's got ametripine, something to better explain it. So that taken in mind, we had these PCPs, and then coincidentally some of them were also requested for comprehensive drug screens. What we do here is we uh, we would take a urine sample, and it's chemically, a lot of wet chemicals, divide it. We do make it acidic and basic, do two extractions to pull out acid drugs, basic drugs, and neutral drugs, combine them. Then when we shoot that into the mass spectrometer, the fragmentation pattern is out of a library. So we're looking at a physical constant. So what it does is it matches against... Something called the user library Which is about 125 compounds That we see all the time Cocaine, whatever If it doesn't get a very good match It defaults to another What's called a Flieger library Which has like 7,500 drugs and metabolites Drugs, poisons and metabolites If it doesn't get a good match It automatically defaults to the MBS library Which has 75,000 compounds And quite honestly lot of stuff we see we never report We don't care. Some urine chromophore or something. It'll yeah, it it like, you know. But interestingly, it misses things like marijuana. But it does? Uh, and you ask, it does. It will because it's a true acid. We were talking about yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Acids, acid. by that I mean true acids, the old AC double bond OH, will not come through a GC. You have to derivatize them because they'll just stick on the column. So you have to uh, derivatize GC. a separate method for THC.
1: And then Phil, just to go back, what was the punchline in the PCP? (laughs) What
4: was that? (laughs) What happened was we we had the we had the luxury of doing some comprehensive drug screens, and I got like three of them, and there was a common drug because we were looking for other things. So I contacted the manufacturer and said, "Your insert doesn't say this interferes. Is it possible you did it?" Was actually it was on like a webinar, and they said, "We've had reports. Our technical people are looking for that." We we suspect that, but that was years ago, and they never came out with anything. But it's just you know just false positive. They have to fit the picture too. And just
3: before we lose this, uh, leave this case altogether. One thing to keep in mind clinically: if you don't have testing results in front of you, or you get strange testing results, one of the more common causes of dystonia in kids will be methamphetamine, far more common than it, yeah. uh, far
0: more common than mm-hmm. cocaine will be mm-hmm. and readily available in both illicit and illicit yes. exactly right. So. Right.
2: all their siblings yes. ADHD medications yes.
0: Yeah.
2: yes so the only other one question is my understanding too though if you do detect cocaine it's been ingested at least two to the outset of four days is that accurate
1: so the window of detection <laughs> is usually about
2: <laughs> 72 hours um,
1: Okay. And the, the good thing is that the cocaine metabolites may persist beyond the symptoms. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Case number two. A few-week-old infant. Uh, mother is positive for cocaine. The patient is placed on a 72-hour hold at an outlying hospital. Mother wanted to breastfeed. I assume a child-safe uh, specialist was contacted and recommended that she pump and discharge her breast milk until she had three negative screens. The outlying hospital, shockingly enough, did not follow this request, and the patient was fed mother's breast milk. The infant now has a seizure, is transported to um, a children's hospital. Infant's toxicology was negative, but the mother's breast milk was tested, a great idea, and it was positive for cocaine. Discussion points for this include recommendations made to parents regarding breastfeeding and drug use, recommendations to CPS in terms of risk to the infant. Okay. Well, I think risk management would include seizures.
2: Yes. Agreed. <laughs> okay. Well,
1: I, I was actually really surprised when I did the lit search on this topic because there actually are proposed guidelines about when a cocaine using mother wishes to breastfeed. And the proposed guidelines come out of Mother Risk, which is a largely toxicology consortium in Canada with a toxicologist there by the name of Gideon Corrin. He and his group actually put together a, a recommendation, and I was surprised that actually when they reviewed the literature, and the specific paper I'm looking at is from 2005, what they proposed is that women who are intermittent cocaine users be allowed to breastfeed. And there are actually a number of recommendations, and we'll talk about some of the other ones in the next case, but it's surprising to me that some of these medications and drugs are considered to be, if not safe, allowable during pregnancy. So there are a couple questions that I think are are worth asking about these cases. The recommendations that they make in this paper are, are, are several One is that moms be informed about the risk of breastfeeding when they're using cocaine. Two is that they pump and dump or they pump and get rid of milk within 24 hours of their last cocaine use. And then three is that they're involved in some sort of substance abuse counseling to try to decrease the risk of them continuing to use cocaine. Four is that if you're going to continue to breastfeed as a cocaine user that your physicians are screening you for drug use so that they can you know repetitively counsel you about risk and offer you resources for substance abuse. So in the case that's provided here I have a couple questions. When did the baby seize it? What day of life?
2: I believe it was day nineteen. Yeah uh, so around eighteen days of age.
1: And I think that question is just important in terms of differentiating a neonatal abstinence syndrome versus an adverse effect from the breastfeeding itself. And and that far out, specifically with cocaine, I wouldn't expect this would be NAS. I think the problem is that if you have a mom who's got heavy ongoing cocaine use, this is a risk that's associated with breastfeeding. And I think that she was appropriately counseled. And I think that this was potentially predictable. And
2: preventable and preventable Mm -hmm, yeah
5: Yeah. you know i think there's a toxicology question here clearly but i think that the child protection question is depends somewhat on the tox answer but i think should be a little bit broader everybody should keep in mind that intermittent cocaine use seems a little bit like an oxymoron to me um it doesn't make that doesn't makes sense, completely. I'm not a child protective service worker. I'm a physician, but i if I were a social worker sort of being assigned to this case, that should be the question that I'm being asked and that we should consider, that if you're going to say, if you're going to write a statement like that, you know, intermittent cocaine use, I think there should be a caveat to that, because that is in the context of parenting. So... Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, it was fully explored that a parent is just using, you know, every once in a while, and she's finding very, very safe child care for her child while she's using by a responsible adult. Who's not using. Who's not using. Right. And mm-hmm. I just think that all of those things are also the pertinent yes. issues. I think so. it gets back, you to, to what, you know, what is the definition of intermittent.
6: Yeah. And how, as a physician, are we able to fully differentiate what intermittent versus chronic use is and how comfortable are we with our ability to actually clinically get to that information and trust that information to be able to provide the recommendations based from that article or
5: otherwise. And, and not to mention polydrug use. Right. right. I mean, and I think that if there's someone who's using cocaine intermittently or whatever, well, what are they using on the other days? you are using... Right heroin intermittently in between or you know what methamphetamines in between so well I think it's really interesting
1: because i feel like from the from the maternal fetal medicine side sometimes the perspective is different from the child protection side and it, it's it's pretty interesting to look at it's some of the motivation i think for why they make the recommendations that they do they say between I think it's 5 to 10 million pregnant women a year actually use cocaine at some point during their pregnancy. So the numbers are really high. The folks who are based in sort of this maternal-fetal medicine milieu are, are very concerned about bonding, mm-hmm. about forming relationships mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. mother and child. And I get mm-hmm. why they're advocating for the things that they're advocating for. But I, as a toxicologist, I have concerns. Mm-hmm. And I think that the concerns that I have are specifically maternal transfer of cocaine. Now, I, I don't know whether or not it was actually cocaine that was found in the breast milk or if it was cocaine metabolites in this case. I think that if You actually did identify cocaine, what you're saying is that mom was using in close proximity to him when she was breastfeeding. And so I think that this is somebody who should be essentially categorically counseled that she can't continue breastfeeding until she's clean. I'm just going to read their guideline algorithm so that I'm doing an, an appropriate job of summarizing their article because I don't I don't want to throw them under the bus. So through interview and maternal urine test, establish recent current use of cocaine and other drugs, opioids, cannabinoids, amphetamines, and alcohol. Two, estimate maternal commitment to breastfeeding and to discontinuation of cocaine. Three, refer offer addiction services. Four, monitor maternal urine weekly and baby's health weekly or more often as needed clinically. Five, if maternal urine remains negative and baby is doing fine, follow up. Six, if maternal urine is positive, measure cocaine in several milk samples. Also measure cocaine in baby's urine. Seven, if milk and baby's urine are cocaine positive and baby is doing well, follow up. Eight, if milk and baby's urine are cocaine positive and baby has symptoms consistent with cocaine, discontinue breastfeeding. Nine, if baby has cocaine symptoms but milk and baby's urine are negative, consider the following differential diagnosis withdrawal of opioids, barbiturates, alcohol, SSRIs, or benzodiazepines, infection, or sepsis. Interesting. So, so I think that in terms of addressing an approach to hopefully minimizing cocaine toxicity, they, they've presented one algorithm here, but in terms of establishing that milieu of, of a protective environment, I'd be interested in your thoughts.
5: Yeah, I'm a huge proponent of breastfeeding for bonding, for our patients, you know, for these patients that we take care of and their parents. I think it's extremely important. But I think within that context of talking about breastfeeding, I think that that conversation of getting into treatment can occur. You know, I think that this is actually an opportunity to talk about parenting as opposed to a leaf of drug use, or at least for a, for a period of time. I might be like, have my head in the sand about this, but we see this all the time. I don't I don't see... I see... I, that's not true. I do, we see parents who choose their children oh, over yeah. drug use. I just think this is an... It, it is an opportunity to, to, to think about ways to engage particularly mothers.
0: And realistically, I mean, this is an interesting thing, too, because these are all guidelines meant for a population but every single patient and every single encounter is different Mm -hmm. and I think one of the hard things is everyone in this room is dedicated to keeping children safe yeah and thus if you are a parent and you are using a substance you by definition are not keeping your child safe Mm -hmm. the flip side is I mean I have patients all the time that do cocaine is a party drug and they Mm -hmm. do not use for months at a time and then go to a party and use I'm not defending that I'm and when I hear that I am so doubtful and I say sure But in reality, there are different patterns of use for different agents, and some people do choose to use that. Unfortunately, because I'm not a drug user or a drug advocate, I am much more likely to hear somebody use once and say, you're probably using every day. Mm -hmm. Just like somebody says, I have one or two drinks a day, and in the chart it becomes alcoholic. And I think that we sometimes don't look at it that way, and we lack that insight primarily because we don't see any motivation to use it all. It's tricky. I think it's very, very tricky. You definitely have to evaluate for daily usage, but there are people that yeah, do. Yeah, no, of, of course. It's yeah. hard.
2: And I think the hard part, too, is, and we talked about this related to the previous case, is that if you're seeing a patient as an adult patient and she's telling you, as she said in this case, I've been clean for two years, I don't know how my screen was positive when I was pregnant. Um, you know, you have an opportunity, and absolutely you need to continually try to attempt to get her into rehab. But now we're talking about the safety and well-being of an infant. And I think that changes for me about trying to determine what are the thresholds. And I think that in this case, I talked to a because I was like, I didn't really even have a basis of saying, do three clean screens and pumping up until I can at least figured that out, but felt like, okay, at least I'm giving myself some time. I want her to pump, right? Because I don't want her to miss the opportunity to engage them later on in breastfeeding her child. But right now in that time frame, I just felt it was unsafe given the circumstances. So she wasn't being what honest she about said, her use. Right.
5: So what if she had said to you, you know what? I did. I got really involved in the moment and I just yep. wanted to have one last like, hmm, and I, I, have, I have actually been clean. Yep. There was this one time. I mean, we talk about this all the time yeah. with you know, Katie comes in with a fracture or some other sort of significant injury. And we just want to say, if you could really just acknowledge how right. this happens, exactly. we can all move forward yeah. this. But I just think <laughs> that with
2: drug use, though, I i was concerned that knowing family. particularly that her drug of, of choice could be passed in breast milk, it made me concerned enough to say to not provide that breast milk to the baby until we at least have these things and have mom <laughs> engage in mm-hmm. in. Rehab, And she was saying she didn't need to. She was clean. So it was sort of a very difficult...
0: Oh, absolutely. And cocaine in pregnancy is just terrifying. I remember I had a mother who was both addicted to both cocaine and heroin uh, during pregnancy. And I was like, um, "If you're gonna quit one, please quit the cocaine. Um, you know, because <laughs> right. quitting both might be hard. Right. But the cocaine's bad for babies. It's very bad. Yeah. And these are situations <laughs> we should never. Ne- these are conversations we should never have, to have ever. It's a very why, thing. why three? Why three negatives?
2: There's there wasn't any. There really is no basis for that. And that's why I actually spoke with Camille. i like, I would like us to sort of figure out a way to actually have a scientifically based plan. The reason being only is that." That I felt that it would give me enough time frame that they could actually test her over a period of days and, and see if, in fact, Just there was. Right. And,
3: every, and everything else milks out.
2: <laughs> right. No, but the problem, too, is I mean, uh, there is, it is not feasible in any way, shape, or form to check the breast milk every single time before you give it to the baby. I mean, the only reason I had it checked here was because obviously the child had a seizure and therefore well. knowing these circumstances already made me concerned that it was potentially from cocaine. And so I think that we're caught in this clinically, what do I do? I mean, I'm going to go to family court, and the judge is going to say, what do you mean you don't want this mother to be able to provide breast milk? Isn't breast milk better for babies than anything else? So I, <laughs> and it gives the baby a pet.
5: <laughs> <laughs> so,
2: could I say one? Could I say two? Oh, could I, could I say a, a month? I mean, there was nothing, and that's what I would love to be able to come up with a guideline that was helpful in that. I don't know that there's an answer to it. I, again, if she had come up with three clean urines and then we allowed her to breastfeed, and could this still have happened? Absolutely.
0: Can we talk about testing breast milk, though? <coughs> Actually, because that's a great its a great concept. Mm-hmm. It's something that doesn't occur to a lot of people. What? I have a history of doing this, so
2: yeah. Um, of oh, testing, <laughs> testing unusual substances.
0: Testing unusual substances. Top 10 unusual I substances tested.
2: I, yeah. Vomit. I have. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> Vomit's great.
2: Yeah,
1: vomit
0: <laughs> <is> great. It's just <laughs> <systemic> stomach <laughs> contents. You just don't have yeah. to go fishing for it.
1: <laughs> um, I, you know, and the, the, the... Sorry to get back to what you said. When you look at these rats, women can still breastfeed with positive screens because... And again, sort of go back to the article. This is the 2012 Canadian Family Physician article also by Dr. Korn, Dr. Kressman... What they said is that for addicted mothers who elect to breastfeed but continue to use cocaine intermittently, breastfeeding should be delayed sufficiently after cocaine use to allow for drug elimination of approximately 24 hours. So, in the setting of ongoing use, they're actually not relying on negative drug screens, right. instead they're they're looking for
3: moms yeah, to become I, you know, I was wondering if you could if there was anything known about the <coughs> half-life of elimination into breast milk,
0: and then you could just take five <laughs> half-lives, and at
3: that point... Do you that know that? One
5: is uh,
0: that's <laughs> interesting. Well, and realistically, because with breastfeeding, really what you're talking about is metabolism in the body, excretion, because there's always a ratio, right, of, of uh, plasma level to breast milk level, and then how much is the toxic level in an infant, which we generally assume is zero. But there, there are some levels, and so realistically what they're doing is they're treating it like a pharmacokinetic um, problem, which on some level, which one's going to be more successful? Saying your use at all, saying this is the safe thing. It's sort of, it's almost a harm reduction strategy towards cocaine use in breastfeeding mothers. I have one question about breast milk as a fluid. Now urine is a low protein fluid,
2: but breast milk is a higher protein fluid. Now, if you have a high
0: protein fluid, what does that do to the binding effects of Mm. the drug? And this would be my question in that regard. It's not what would you do with a negative screen, but what would you do with a barely detectable positive screen? Would that mean that you actually have a much higher load of drug? Yeah, and, 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 I, think, and I
3: think that's the that's point. I mean, we know that cocaine, in its native form, is a fairly lipophilic compound. That's why you know, like it mm-hmm. enters your brain you know, crosses the blood brain barrier so rapidly and you know, it induces its you know, neuropsychiatric effects. You know, that, that's why. That's why I say I'd like to know what the like elimination half-life into breast milk is.
1: And just to go back to the article in terms of the available information that we have, they say that there are limited reports about the measurement of cocaine in breast milk following maternal intranasal use. However, given its physicochemical properties with a PKA of 8.6, it is expected that cocaine present in the maternal systemic circulation would pass into breast milk in meaningful amounts and exhibit a high milk-to-plasma ratio. Cocaine present in the breast milk would then be absorbed orally to a limited degree by the breastfeeding infant as it is typically broken down in the gut and the infant might be exposed to limited amounts of the drug. However, given that the metabolic capacity to metabolize and clear drugs such as cocaine is not fully developed in neonates exposure to small doses could persist and cause considerable harm few reports exist that have examined the effects of cocaine during breastfeeding on infant outcomes. Reports show substantial variability in the level of cocaine detected in breast milk, which might represent methodologic issues in cocaine detection, considerable inter-individual variability in cocaine pharmacokinetics, or important differences in levels of cocaine
3: use. This this highlights another really important aspect of medical toxicology. How do grown-ups take cocaine? They either inject it, or they smoke it, or they snort it. Nobody eats it. Now you could say, Well people smoke pot, but you know they also they also make hash brownies. <laughs> and put in another source of consumable items. Um, and that's because cocaine, you know, you lose so much bang for the buck when you ingest it because it hydrolyzes in in the stomach very rapidly. Children are different. <laughs> and you know, like a lot of you know, like a lot of people out there just don't recognize the ontogenic differences in pediatric development which lead to alterations in drug effect you know, why you would expect active cocaine after ingestion you know, I don't know precisely what's going on in the GI system of the, of the neonate that you know, allows cocaine to remain active but you know, proof's in the pudding yeah, you can have you can have adverse neurologic outcomes after oral administration of cocaine.
2: And uh, you were, were talking about testing the smoke. I mean is there I mean there are certain things that I have been told no I shouldn't test in like a Yuho? <laughs> <laughs> like is the like
3: Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. Kind of like chocolate yeah. Like uranium. Yeah. <laughs> and it comes in a bottle
2: yeah. That's another whole discussion yeah, for you, another so, day of yeah. of a different type of case, but I wasn't, for, right I wasn't looking for I wasn't looking for illicit drugs actually. I, I certainly have asked to have testing for urine, for blood, for breast milk? I mean, is there any problem in the lab? I mean, I'm sure they're like, okay, when I send that, but...
4: (laughs) You probably sent that out, correct? It's another very special. special. it is. Yeah, typically typically something like that would be sent down. It's not a routine order within the lab with established policies. That being said, you know, one of the realities is that we can very often technically or analytically do something but the external constraints on you prohibit you from being a scientist it's not uh authorized it's not uh, there are sometimes outside constraints on it i mean as far as giving a chemical you probably to me it doesn't make a difference i could extract it and shoot it in but the you know, screening test wouldn't apply yep You know, you'd have to go through some other method.
0: Okay. And this is where like so we've had experts at some of the national meetings, national talks meetings we've had experts from the FBI and some other federal agencies talk and they will spend literally months developing and validating a novel assay for a particular case in order to gain that ability. But yeah, in a in a lab where you know you've got
4: a thousand other cases to run, yeah. Historically I remember many years ago. The term we always called was whip up a test. Uh, we would come in, uh, I remember coming in at 2 in the morning to test somebody for curare poisoning. Mm. <laughs> right. uh, wow. not Interesting. But, you know, we were, you know we, we were more flexible those days because of outside regulations, uh, liabilities, that type
2: of stuff. Uh, yeah, this was definitely a send out. It was a dope. <laughs> And it looks like the metabolite, and it looks like it was Quest that did the testing. And
1: They've actually got a test number for looking for cocaine in breast milk. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I, I they probably can't. have a
0: bunch of cocaine breast milk standards set from right, cocaine-using women that they just. I would bet you a buck though that it
3: does involve yeah. that it does involve an awful lot of extractions because sure. if you just take milk and try to shoot on a column, it's going to smear. Yeah,
0: yeah smear the yeah. yeah. you could run through a column every... <laughs> Do you speak from experience? Is that? <laughs> <definitely>. <laughs> I am at home, I do milk. <laughs> <laughs> Like, it's, my, it's my
6: background. <laughs>
0: uh, in case number three. A uh, seven week old infant presents to a children's hospital apneic, requiring intubation and ventilation for approximately the next 24 hours. Mother reports bringing the child to the methadone clinic where she gets her dose, um, returned home, and then the baby stopped breathing, so she called 911. It says she breastfed for the first three weeks and then stopped. Initially denied. Um, taking uh, homes of her methadone doses, but later admitted that she does get to take homes. Toxcreen was positive for opiates. Uh, Comtox was positive for methadone. CPS is questioning if she could have breastfed infant, which led to apnea. Um, And the discussion points are methadone, how does it work? Does it work? Uh, What symptom does it cause in an adult to alleviate craving? So can
1: methadone moms breastfeed? Yes. They're supposed to be able to, yes. And there's actually an AAP guideline about breastfeeding safety in moms on methadone. And I think there are a couple reasons there as well. One gets back to the idea of the benefits of breastfeeding and bonding. Two is that the opioids don't typically have high transfer in breast milk. But three is the caveat, and this is the idea that moms have to be on a stable dose of their methadone and not concurrently using other substances mm-hmm. in order to breastfeed. Mm-hmm. And there are a couple of kind of interesting regals when you think about methadone and breastfeeding. One is that they don't want moms who are breastfeeding, who are on methadone, to abruptly stop breastfeeding because you can precipitate a later-than-usual methadone, neonatal abstinence syndrome. So usually that can take days to declare itself anyway, and we know it can be delayed, but in the baby that's actually continuing to breastfeed with a mom on methadone, if she cuts off at any point down the road, you may start to get symptoms. Um, I think the other thing is that other opioids we think tend to be safe in breastfeeding as well. And Rob Hendrickson from OHSU actually wrote a paper on opioid use in breastfeeding. But there are a lot of factors that may affect transfer to the babies. So time from last use to breastfeeding, some of the genotypic metabolism of opioids, specifically 2D6. And then I think that the problem is that when you have this up-down pattern, you just can't get a predictable response anymore. So if mom is on methadone and concurrently using heroin and then breastfeeds, you may get the types of symptoms that we're talking about here. But I think the last thing, and and this is something that I feel like has crept into all of our consciousness, and, and we don't know exactly how to evaluate this in a lot of these patients, is just did the mom give the baby methadone, methadone. Mm-hmm. and so i think the last question is especially since she's no longer breastfeeding mm-hmm. and she hasn't been breastfeeding for 4 weeks in the era of pharmaceutical availability i think all of us have seen that case where the baby won't stop crying mm-hmm. the baby is agitated the baby is irritable and then the parent uses one of the controlled
6: substances well, that dog. they have available there was a piece yeah. there was a piece it's, of this particular case <laughs> that actually was very significant and suggested that that actually might be the case.
5: Well, so that's what we actually came to, but there was this period of time where we were not able to say that because this question of... So let's just say we knew that this mom was getting methadone, so let's just sort of eliminate the opiate-positive piece, just obviously. I mean, because uh, that suggests something completely different. Oh, a whole different problem. So let's just sort of eliminate that for a moment. Let's say we sent this test of this baby for methadone, I, which I would say I, I want you to test for methadone. So the question was, would breastfeeding actually lead to apnea? I mean that was also. I mean that's what breastfeeding while well, I mean, on Transferring of methadone breast- through breast yeah. milk I mean, causes apnea. That, why, that why would you we why would you say level, that t- right? that breastfeeding is okay if that's a possibility? That's not like dystonia. That's stuff, That's death.
1: I think that when there's a bulk of that's a good a question. sort of clinical experience saying that you can safely breastfeed your infant on a stable dose of methadone when the kid comes in apneic something is hinky. And so I think it's much more likely that mom is abusing or administering the methadone as opposed to this truly being a methadone in breast milk related adverse event. The ways I can see that happening are one that mom is has just had a dose step up. So she did. She, she had a dose escalation. She
5: had not had a dose step up.
0: Well, and the other thing is, even if she didn't get stepped up, if she's yeah. got home doses, if she skipped a day and then doubled down on right. one day, then she could do right. her own dose step. She also, down on one day
6: she's tired. she also <laughs> the, the piece of history that she gave is that she, when she was breastfeeding, she thought things were going well. I can't remember why she stopped breastfeeding right now, but what I do remember about this case is that when she did stop breastfeeding, she gave me a very clear history that the baby was much fussier and didn't you know do as well. And that was what led us to so, kind of with these home doses mm-hmm. and considering so of why she so was... So basically yeah. the
3: only thing the kid didn't do was seize, it sounds like.
0: Pretty much, yeah. Mm-hmm. The difference between the recommendations that try to model exactly what we're talking about and this particular case is you actually can get numbers here. And so I think that's the defining factor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in this particular case, what you would do is you, and I think it's what you did, you yes. treated it like uh, almost a pharmacokinetic problem, which is the same thing that forensic toxicologists do when they get a blood alcohol level and an accident or anyone mm-hmm. else. That's
5: actually what happened. Yeah. exactly it, what we is did, that yeah. Whoever I spoke with said, well, we need to find out the actual quantity of the methadone mm-hmm. of the amount. It's interesting because I look at it differently. I, I, I look at it as first she said she didn't get take homes. And right. then she did, said that she did. So that right there to me is just like forgetting about anything else. This is a drug using mother mm-hmm. who wasn't.
3: Fit. But the only way you get take homes in is Rhode Island you, is if
0: you've been, been a good patient. Been a good patient for a long right. time. Been right. a good quote unquote methadone patient.
5: Right. And she was very, I'll tell you right now, she was she, very good. Is she on for heroin? Or she, heroin. she was great. Well, and she was the so, nicest drug user I've ever met. Seriously. <laughs> oh, seriously. Of
3: you know, doctor, you can take away my baby. I'd better be nice to you now. Yeah. The, yeah. The secondary gain there. Um, um, I,
1: I think the other thing is that, just out of curiosity, did she have liquid or pill form? Liquid, And so I think that's fascinating because yeah. you know back in the day, moms used to. Stick their finger in the bourbon, right, or mm-hmm. the brandy, and give it to the fussy baby. And now you can do that with that the pink stuff.
3: My mom gave me the bottle.
2: There you go. <laughs> 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 From it to the bottle of milk with the bottle of brandy. <laughs> <laughs> Except in Mississippi, they call that wild turkey bottle, turkey, right? <laughs> so <laughs> it's actually already in a form that's easy to <laughs> administer. And that's why. And I'll tell
6: you, in Philadelphia,
3: it we've it had, had yeah. we've yes. had folks with their take homes yes. put it in the baby food
6: bottle. Yeah. Well, part of the history. You, right before this child came in, the context of the history, literally directly before, was that they had just mixed the bottle and gave given the but, bottle to the. And she the baby. said,
5: and the mother kept saying, but just right. I before. wonder if someone had put it in the bottle
6: yeah.
2: right. at so the clinic. How do you argue this, though? Right, as a defense attorney, we deal with this all the time, and we get thrown at us these bizarre questions. How do you rule out the fact that the mother finished taking her liquid methadone and some is on her hands, and while she's screwing on the oh yeah okay. the yeah. bottle cap. She's transferred how methadone. Much? Oh, this was Directly the
6: question how You much couldn't answer. This was up, the question right? you
5: couldn't answer.
6: Yeah. Well, and I think this is why, why the breastfeeding. Even though she hadn't been breastfeeding, there were two parts of the breastfeeding that came up. She hasn't been breastfeeding for three weeks. So the first question came up was really looking towards this being in court issue of because how short? Could well, it, she's been you know been, been breastfeeding for four weeks. Please, mom. That's what mom's telling you. But is it possible, yes, right, right, that there's have positive they're testing positive from four weeks ago and so we had or to maybe she did just need or maybe and that was the second point or you know i know she said she didn't breastfeed for the last four weeks but what if she did
1: us, I remember one of your that we had two colleagues call
6: let me, let me in you court saying, "And
1: it's possible that aliens flew
6: in the window. That's exactly <laughs> I right. gave her methadone. That's exactly what These are the things. are <laughs> that we but exactly. But these are the things that we, <laughs> <laughs> we sometimes, sometimes we to think about in terms of in what series. we know is going to be challenged in a court setting, because if we have to be able to be able to address those. If you can't get blood, we can help you better.
1: Okay. Because. That's we good. cannot make a comment really? about yeah. we cannot make a comment about what how much right. we can't make any comment about how much methadone in the child may right. have potentially been exposed to when we get a urine
3: because we did blood. On her. What do we, we know about yeah. LDPE in the in the milk? The metabolite. In the of the metabolite. I Okay. I mean, you can if L D E P is you know, like eliminated in the milk and you have a higher than expected concentration in the kid, then that might argue that mom did go ahead and breastfeed or just lost the tolerance, and she really is just being a good mom. I think that if we had more data on metabolites in the kids, we could pin down whether or not it's an acute administration versus a chronic administration, because mom will have LDEP in her in her blood. I anticipate that mom probably would have LDEP, perhaps, maybe. I, I, that's the question in the, uh, in the milk. But if you've got a kid who's got primarily methadone and low concentration of LDEP, that tells me that you've got an acute administration of methadone
5: to the child.
1: And I think I would kind of look at this a little bit differently. In terms of there being a four-week hiatus, I would be like, the kid received methadone. Because, really, the feasibility of having a four-week break from breastfeeding and then picking up again is uh, it, uh, pretty unlikely. And you, being able to produce
6: yeah. a quantity of milk that's that a certain, be sufficient. sufficient. So, I think... It was low 100s. I don't remember what it was. Um, and then we got a to 9.6. To yeah. get back
1: to why, the, why the, yeah. the serum concentration is helpful, is that we can give you a range. And the way that we can give you a range is we can say... There's a couple things that we can say. We can say things like, when do we think the exposure happened? Then we can take the serum level, we can look at the kid's weight, the volume of distribution, and we can try to back-calculate what we think the maximum mm-hmm. the maximum administered dose would be that would produce that concentration. Then, if you wanted to go a step farther, you could be like, um, there's a partitioning coefficient for methadone for mom to milk, and then... You know, kind of look at the ingestion, the the, the bioavailability for the baby. So it would take a metric ton of methadone in mom before breastfeeding Mm -hmm. in this amount of time to produce the level seen in the child. With Mm -hmm. urine, we cannot, we cannot Mm -hmm. make any estimate of quantitation. Mm -hmm. You can kind of be like, it's high, it's it's low, whatever. But, you know, Mm -hmm. there are factors with dilution, there are factors with, um, just you know it, it's, you just can't get there from urine so anytime that you've got a case like this where you're like it's going to get contentious where um, we've got a positive urine drug screen for X if you can get a concomitant serum level we can help you better
0: and, and even better, the other cool I don't know if this was done or could be done, but also, if mom is cooperative and wishes to prove her innocence, since methadone is such a long half-life, like we're not dealing with heroin or something that's gone instantly, her serum level now is pretty much what her serum level was a few hours ago. And so in theory, I wonder if you could get levels and use that to even further corroborate that. So, so what, what volume what volume exactly. of methadone does she get?
3: What,
6: what was her dose volume?
3: volume. I don't,
6: yeah, I, don't know. I don't, I mean, is, I don't it, know if I is it the about
3: big gulp or is, it- or is it like a shot?
6: She. I remember Wait, she was. was like small, little she, she was telling me that they were like little. So yeah, they were sealed. 20 little vials, but I
3: don't. I don't know how much I even think that much. They
5: were small, and then she actually. did what, what the this what the she's going to
3: What the attorneys? Yeah, gonna, blood blood what the defense attorney going to do is come back to you and say, you know, look, it's yeah. in a small volume anyway. She's got multiple hundreds. <laughs> she only had to get five percent. Five percent of right. this exactly. fifteen cc dose is going to be approximately zero point cc's. I've got that in my hand right now. It's easy to miss. That's how the kid got poisoned. Right, so that's
2: what I'm exactly saying. Like the whole putting the it on case. and getting it, sort of transferred onto the. I made. I took my dose. I bill. got some on my hand. I made the. Right, bill. and although so the, you're right that it, it doesn't matter because your mom is still a responsible, but the child protective and the welfare standpoint. standpoint is: is this an unsafe home or not? And if mother is, is, uh, is accidentally doing, it, then you educate her not to do that I anymore. Say it
3: again, but sh- you, hey, you know, proof's in the pudding. Yeah, it's unsafe because the kid died. Like, if it hadn't been for doctors around.
6: Yes.
2: That's,
5: that's
6: exactly what we did yes. But is it, but is it is from... Exactly but this is... Yeah, Because in the court, you know, what, what they're going to say is...
3: Administration is, is a is surrogate marker of death. It's accidental or volitional.
6: Right. Is it intentionally... Correct. Did I, did the mom intentionally put it in the bottle and then feed the baby? Or is it some lack of education, potentially neglect because she had it on her fingers and got it on the bottle? She and first suggested
5: that someone at the clinic had... Yes, she did. ...had, like... Given it to her. Joke on her. But anyway, yeah, anyway, not, in this case, does none of this
1: actually it.
5: Yeah. No. No. It's matters do
1: because the kid was positive for her. methadone and opiates, yeah. Right? So you she can wants, make the case that she she mama actually know. accidentally had the tink liquid on her right. hands and was on so right the opiate. formula. But you can't get a dual drug ingestion that way right. because mom is not supposed to be on any opiates. So I think that we could very concretely make the case yeah. that this kid was at risk and that mom was engaged in bad behaviors that were not right. accurately reported.
6: Yeah, and even when we're, like, we're hypothesizing, talking about this, you know, whether it was of the fingers and the bottle and whatnot, these are all just things that we are talking about because what we know is if we are called to family court to talk about this, these are all the things well, well, that we, we need to sure. have answered as well. Not that we think it's what happened or that it's plausible, but it's something that we need to prepare for in terms of discussing the case.
2: Well, I think that the other thing is that obviously in any case, a kid comes in and everybody can say, oh, that's obviously abuse. We always have to look at the whole differential, True. right? Sure. We always take a step back and say, what else could be causing this? What else yes. could have been the explanation well, for this? Because the outcome right. is serious, right? Well, we're, we're, right. We're, we're
0: having right. to be a we're a child. With, Like brittle bone syndrome. So I think yeah. that
2: those, are, but that's part of our job is yes. to always take that step back and say, well, how else could this be explained? Right. And that's why we called you guys. So, <laughs> Which is, <laughs> unfortunately, the explanation is
1: horrific and, mm-hmm. and,
2: inflicted and this would be a criminal poisoning. Yeah. And and exceedingly unsafe for that child to remain in that environment. Agreed? Yeah. So would the the
1: the purpose would that be to kill the child?
2: No, no, not a no, and, no. and I think yeah. the thing well, is that no, I,
3: can easily, I can easily imagine, you know, yeah. getting some heroin, smoking it, blowing the smoke into the kid's face, and the hope that the kid will just go lie well, down and in a field of poppies. I think like the, the thing Wizard is
1: that you know people, <laughs> <laughs> and, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like most people don't shake their babies with the intention of killing them. Right? Okay. right it's yeah. just. I think the thing is, sometimes you want the baby to stop crying. Sometimes you want the baby to just let you sleep or carry on or or do whatever. But injuring the baby for whatever intention gets you to the same end point. And so I would call this poisoning because you can't administer an adult medication to a child for whatever purpose and have an adverse event
2: and then just be like, well, I I don't really need to hurt that. Right. the same way we don't accept we don't accept you even giving Benedigel, you're not supposed to be giving a right, just right. to sedate them. But the house yeah. staff doesn't all the time. <laughs> <laughs> no charges.
0: And on some level we're getting hung up on the why. while it's important for us mentally and it's, it can be brought up in court. Yeah. We had somebody at conference last week who quoted house and said, I don't know why patients lie, they just do. I just know right. they do. <laughs> that's that's completely true. And yep. and that happens universally is, is Yeah, I don't know necessarily why that sequence of events happened, but the facts seem to point to it. Well, that was a great segment. I want to thank you for listening. And I want to thank the team at the Aubin Child Protection Center and uh, Christine Barron and Amy Goldberg and all their child abuse pediatric fellows. And I hope that you enjoyed that segment as much as I did. There's some Hard things to think about or talk about when we talk about child abuse, but they're really important for us as medical providers to be aware of. Once again, you can get more information at our website, toxtalk.org, or drop us a line at toxtalk at or check us out on Twitter or our Facebook. ToxTalk is a production of the UMass Division of Toxicology and Department of Emergency Medicine. Until next time, this is Matt Zuckerman, signing off.